This episode is brought to you by the Catholic Travel Center, proud partner with America Media for six years, hosting their pilgrimages to Ireland, Italy, Spain, and the Holy Land. Catholic Travel Center is the customized group pilgrimage specialist, serving the Catholic community for nearly 30 years. To organize your organization's next pilgrimage, contact Catholic Travel Center at gocatholictravel.com. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Skira. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. Good Great to be, to be here. I'm feeling yeah. the energy. Yeah, this it's good. Time. Yeah, we're ready to Excited. make some content. Mm-hmm. And what are we drinking this week, Zach? So, I have a surprise. Um, <laughs> Ashley mentioned that her tummy was not feeling well, so I've... I've come ready with ginger beer to help, oh, to help settle your stomach. That was so nice of you. You're so sweet. So, Aww. yeah. So, just give me a second. Gotta open these. They're not twist offs. Tried earlier. All right. Well, All right. Cheers. To, to your tummy. Cheers. Aw, thank you. To your tummy. <laughs> oh, man. That's good. All right. Who are we talking to today, Olga? This week, we're talking with Pat Goffman. He is a Catholic writer and editor of Reaching Out, which is an online publication dedicated to highlighting the LGBT stories of people of faith. Yeah. And more recently, Pat co-founded Vine and Fig. It's an online community for queer Catholics um, that launched back in December. And this is a place uh, they have, you know, social media accounts, but also a Slack community where people can come together and, you know, just share their stories, get resources. um, And it sounds really cool. Yeah. So we talked to Pat about his personal story and, you know, sorting out his two identities as someone who's gay and Catholic. And his work is sort of a community builder. Yep. But first, it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So our first story is about David Haas, who is the uh, Catholic liturgical music composer. He's uh, in the past uh, written and composed certified platinum bangers such as Blessed Are They, The Servant's Song. I love that one. And We Are Called. Uh, Those are all great. Yes. So he's written a new liturgical refrain in honor of Pride Month. Yes. It is called You've Made Me Wonderful, and it's based on Psalm 139, 13 to 14. Um, And David Haas said that these Bible verses speak of a God who knows us better than we know ourselves and loves and accepts all of us. Yeah, it's the the lyrics are basically this uh, Taizé-like refrain that's very simple, but it's the, the root of the message is, you've made me wonderful. And, you know, I think that's really awesome, especially because um, a lot of people who are gay and Catholic struggle with, you know, feeling like they are wonderfully made, that they're broken. And so hopefully hearing something like this in church will remind them that God does love them and they are wonderfully made. Yeah. What's our next story? So this week, the Vatican issued its very first extensive document on gender theory, and it was released by the Congregation for Catholic Education, which is a department within the Roman Curia, and it's a 31-page document that's supposed to present the church's position on gender identity and help Catholics to further engage in this topic. So this is the most comprehensive announcement the church has made on what gender theory, um, and it describes an educational crisis within the church and in the larger society in the way that we teach kids about gender identity. Because this is coming from, as Olga mentioned at the top, the Congregation for Catholic Education. And so it's looking at this in the context of Catholic schools. Right. And the document claims that, you know, there are a lot of 
The reason that this crisis is occurring is because there are challenges that are arising due to gender theory, which they claim rejects the idea that there are differences between women and men, and this eliminates the anthropological basis of the family. Yeah, and it's not clear whether Pope Francis has seen or approved this specific document, um, but it's not exactly anything breaking. Um, it echoes a lot of the language about gender that um, we found in Amoris Laetitia, uh, the Pope's apostolic exhortation on the family. Yeah, he, he's definitely had sent in speeches and all kinds of things, statements that, that are similar to what's found in this. Um, and the document does say that gender theory goes against a Christian vision of anthropology. It also says that the church must be open and should be open to listening and talking with uh, people who... Um, or as they say, proponents of gender theory. Right. And that was some of the criticism that came in about the document is that while the church is calling for dialogue in this document, it's clear that they didn't actually talk, or maybe they did, but it is not evident that they talked to transgender Catholics in making this document. Um, It doesn't really, you know, express the lived experience of a transgender person. What's our next story, Ashley? So 90 Catholic airport chaplains gathered at the Vatican this week um, where they got a special audience with Pope Francis. Um, And he talked to them about how the, the airport is this kind of free zone where people can feel at ease in opening their hearts, entering into a process of healing and making their way back to the house of the father. I thought this was interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I had no idea that there were airport chaplains. Same. Have you never been to a chapel in the airport? No, I mean, I think I've seen signs in like a couple. I think airport mm-hmm. signage in general is usually yeah. bad. Maybe that's just because we live in New York. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wait, have you been to an airport <laughs> chapel, Ashley? Yeah. I'm, well, yeah. <laughs> have I? So no. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of assumed I did, but maybe I haven't. Yeah, I guess I've just seen the sign and thought I should go in. And yeah. <laughs> so there. So that's one interesting in itself, and it seems like a place you'd maybe want to go in an airport because they are stressful places. But also, uh, Pope Francis was talking a lot about ministering to the people who work at airports, right? Like security agents and uh, fast food workers. Terribly stressful job. Yeah. And kind of thankless a lot of the times, right? And the last group that he mentioned, there's a special concern um, for migrants and refugees who arrive at a lot of these major airports. Uh, Airport chaplains are some of the first people uh, on the defense line. So I'm glad Pope Francis is paying attention to airport chaplains. I'm going to the next time I fly. (laughs) What's our next story, Olga? So a new report from The Washington Post is shedding light on the financial abuses committed by West Virginia's Bishop Michael J. Bransfield in the years leading up to his ouster by the Vatican. So the report is stating that Bransfield gave $350,000 in cash gifts to fellow priests, including a lot of powerful cardinals and seminarians and young priests who have been accused, who have accused the bishop of sexual harassment and inappropriate behavior. Right. So this was like an extremely demoralizing report to read. It's just like... It's not clear that he broke any laws, but just like the flagrant misuse of funds of the diocese in one of the poorest uh, states in the country was just like horrifying. Um, He's no longer the bishop in Wheeling, Charleston. Um, The Vatican launched an investigation into him um, and they and he ended up being removed in March for his um, alleged sexual and financial abuses. Another layer to this is that the bishop, one of the bishops who was in charge of leading this investigation, Archbishop Laurie of Baltimore, 
was actually someone who received some of these cash gifts. Yeah. And he led the Vatican investigation into Bransfield. Right. And then in his report back to the Vatican, failed to mention that he had received gifts or, from or, Bransfield. Yeah. The names were redacted. And so it took the Washington Post somehow getting their hands on both versions of, of these reports to sort of bring this to light. Right. And th- and this news is coming forward right as the bishops are starting to gather in Baltimore for their annual meeting. And, you know, the bishops have been facing a lot of mounting pressure to create a culture of accountability and transparency in the U.S. church. So a lot of people have been very critical of this new discovery. I, I, and I was just really disheartened because it just there is an element of sexual abuse in this story that's really, really troubling. Mm-hmm. But there is also an element that just shows that it's so much bigger than that, right? Yeah. There's just sort of like, you know, giving powerful cardinals thousands and thousands of dollars and both parties somehow thinking that's normal? Yeah, no, it, that was really disheartening. Um, and so I, I actually called my mom to process this news um, because she's she's worked um, on like finance committees for mm-hmm. diocese. She was the acting CFO at the Archdiocese of Washington. So she like has seen all of this from the inside. Um, and she did say that like Bransfield's giving of thousands of dollars was an outlier. But she also said that like the current governance structures of diocese makes it pretty much like impossible to stop this sort of thing from happening or to bring it to light without like people going to the Vatican and them launching an investigation and then Washington Post reporting it. Like, it takes so much to bring these sort of things to light. And And it's because the bishop has ultimate authority over everything. Right. And even with outside groups sort of holding bishops accountable or at least producing reports, there's still this essence of clericalism or there, you know, what, what, what can you do, as you said? Yeah. My mom did, like, point to practical reforms that could, you know, stop this sort of thing from happening. And one of them is, you know, dividing up the powers that the bishop has. Right now he's he's the pastor of the flock in his diocese, but he's also the chief executive officer. But he's a CEO who cannot be fired or really have any meaningful oversight from the board of directors, which is what like a normal nonprofit would have. Um, so she suggested, you know, dividing up those roles. So you have the bishop who's the pastor of the flock and in charge of all spiritual affairs in the diocese. And then you could have a lay administrator who's in charge of um, in charge of money and is subject to real oversight, which it, that would be a big step. It would be a huge <laughs> step, one that seems like it makes a lot of sense, but would be yeah, she said Probably. she did not expect that one in her lifetime. <laughs> well, oh, that's that's rough. Hopefully it's brought up. Hopefully the bishops, we're praying for them. They're meeting this week. They're talking about ways to make this better. Um, yeah. So they need our prayers. What's our next story, Zach? Last week, former vice president and 2020 Democratic presidential hopeful Joe Biden affirmed and then a day later reversed his support for the Hyde Amendment, which is a law that prevents federal funds from paying for abortions in most circumstances. Biden received a lot of criticism from his fellow candidates when he initially said that he stood by the, his decades long support for Hyde. Biden, who is a lifelong Catholic, had previously said that while he is personally pro-life, he does not think that the government should interfere with a woman's right to choose. Yeah. And so his decision to to back the Hyde Amendment as Zach said, this means federal money going to abortions. Um, it was, I think it really shows how far the Democratic Party has swung in favor of pretty absolute abortion rights. Um, the Hyde Amendment had enjoyed bipartisan support for years. Um, and it was only in 2016 that the Democratic Party called for repealing the Hyde Amendment. Right. 
And Biden's reversal was something that has been really criticized, especially by the Democrats for Life of America. The executive director, Kirsten Day, said, we are extremely disappointed that Vice President Biden chose to cave to the pressure of the abortion lobby instead of standing with a majority of Americans who support this amendment. What's our next story, Ashley? All right. So now we have some sports news. Pascal Siakam. 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 uh, The forward for the Toronto Raptors. Uh, who right now is making his way towards the NBA championship. They are one game away. One game away. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, before he was a forward on the Raptors, he was a seminarian. Yeah. Yeah. So he was a seminarian in his home country of Cameroon. And at first he hated his time in the seminary and actively tried to get kicked out. Yeah, I thought that was (laughs) funny. And it was good that the uh, rectors and leaders of the seminary did not let him... uh, get kicked out of seminary because that was where he went to his first basketball camp. He loved soccer first, but then uh, realized that like, hey, you're pretty tall. Um, (laughs) Probably going to be really good at this one sport that has dunking in it. Right, right. And I really appreciate the fact that he says that his time here really helped him to focus and kind of just develop the discipline that he now very clearly has in the NBA. Yeah, he... Ended up, uh, there was a story in ESPN about him late last year where he said that uh, seminary really helped him focus on himself and in his work ethic. And it uh, it taught him how to, as he said, like be a man and be a part right. of a team, which um, I'm glad to see that uh, he left seminary to join the NBA. I was, I saw a similar parallel to my own life. Where oh, I was, Lord, here we go. I left basketball <laughs> and joined the church, sort of. <laughs> Same thing. So, Pascal, Uh, if you hear this, come on Jesuitical. in studio today is Pat Goffman. He is a Catholic writer, editor of Reaching Out, a medium publication for LGBT stories from people of faith, and one of the co-founders of Vine and Fig, an online community for queer Catholics. Welcome to Jesuitical, Pat. Thanks. It's so good to be here. We're very excited to have you. So we're going to get to Vine and Fig a little later, but first we wanted to ask you about your own story. Now, you're proud to be gay and Catholic. Has that always been the case? Not at all. I was running from uh, both of those identities at, at various points in my life. I definitely realized I was gay early on. And I don't know that when I was in, in high school, my faith had a, a very big part of my life until about my senior year when I went through a big conversion experience in my parish. And I really started getting involved in, in different leadership activities and, and my parish's youth group. And kind of from that point forward, Anything that had to do with my sexuality, just it went on the back burner, it went on the high shelf, and I avoided it at all costs. I eventually ended up going to seminary and and doing a couple of things that I know a lot of guys who end up realizing that they're gay do to never really have to uh, fully reconcile kind of their sexuality with uh, their faith because there are places within the Catholic Church that you can hide from it. So you're saying seminary is one of those places for you? Certainly. That's that's. I know that I went to, to both a seminary and a monastery in order to be able to uh, be celibate and be uh, living according to the church's teachings, but also never really having to talk to a single soul about my sexuality if I didn't want to. I could just be pursuing a vocation, and that was enough to be celibate. 
And there weren't really conversations about sexuality in seminary. It I seems like I, that would be an important thing to. You would think talk so. I don't, I don't remember a single one. There were were certainly times when guys were encouraged to you know really leave behind former girlfriends, and they were encouraged to have a uh, a healthy relationship with the internet and pornography and th- and things like that that are just maybe generic men's issues. But there was never anything in regards to your sexuality. There was one talk at the very beginning of seminary. This was my very first weekend when the rector got up and he said, look, statistically, there will be some of you that are are gay. And that's going to be a unique cross that some of y'all have to bear. So I, I would encourage you to maybe find a priest on staff that you could talk with it about. And uh, he was the actually the priest on my floor. So I went and really early on in, in my time in seminary, I, I kind of, he was the very first priest that I ever told and said, hey, look, I'm gay. I I struggle with same sex attractions, and I uh, am I'm here in the seminary now. And he said, "Wow, that he genuinely understood that that would be hard and and unique in seminary." And he kind of said, "If at any point you want to talk to me about it, you know, I'm here." And from that point on, I never did because I was terrified of it. I didn't know what 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 are you supposed to say to a priest when you're thinking of becoming one yourself, as long as you're not acting out on it in any way. You were you were content to just be terrified of it and 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 hide from it. So you left seminary. Um, did things get easier to reconcile those two identities after that, or what? What was the turning point for you? Yeah, unfortunately, it had to get harder before it got better. Mm. And I became a Catholic school teacher afterwards. I was actually teaching morality and social justice. So still very a, a much committed coach. to the church. At this yeah, at point, that time right? I was I was still really engaged. I was I was going back and helping out in that old youth group that I I used to be involved in, and teaching in a Catholic school. And and for the first time now, I was single and on the market, and, and really involved in my parish. And so every mom wanted to set me up with with somebody, <laughs> and and I had no reasonable excuse for the first couple of months I could say well hey I just I just got out of the seminary I need a little bit of time mm-hmm. I don't um, know that that many former seminarians wait that long so. <laughs> true usually they've got somebody that they <laughs> that they left behind that they're they're going back to yeah um, but definitely I had that that terrible um, sensation of realizing just how alone and broken I was for kind of the first time in the eyes of the church that everybody was saying that you are just a a perfect person for marriage. And on every level, the church was saying, actually, deep down, you're not. And so I was deeply depressed. I was um, definitely contemplating suicide. I just, I couldn't see how there was a path forward for me for this because it just felt like at the deepest level, I was kind of falling apart. And so I ended up joining a monastery. I I lasted about two years as a, a, a teacher. And I remember thinking, well, maybe I just need to give up everything. Maybe the problem is that I'm actually kind of in the world and I'm uh, out there with folks and, and facing temptations. And, and if I just gave my entire life to Jesus, and if I just let everything go, that I would find the peace that I was promised when they said, Jesus is enough and you're supposed to be celibate and 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 that is your you're the only path that's really available for you. And so uh, I joined a mendicant order in France and when I got there I realized 
that that was a terrible mistake because now I I truly had nothing to distract me from who I was deep down inside and and I couldn't run away from that even if it was going to another continent. Mm. And so after three months, I, I sat down with uh, the the head of the uh, the monks and said, look, this is me, this is my story, and I think I should leave. And he said, yeah, it's probably a good idea that you leave <laughs> as well. Now, at, at no point were you, I guess at this point, thinking I should leave the, the church altogether. How did sort of coming to accept your sexuality along the way and telling other people about it affect your relationship with the church. Yeah. It was when I finally then came back from from France in this monastery that I gave myself permission to say, do I agree with the church's teaching on, on sexuality? Because I've now lived it out every single possible way that the Catholic Church says a gay Catholic man can can live his life as a single celibate guy, as a seminarian preparing for for priesthood, um, or in a in a monastery and religious life, and all of them seem to to fail miserably. So, um, do I still want to be a part of this church, or is there um, a, a a piece of it that I can hold on to still? Because um, I felt deep in my bones that I just was Catholic. I, I, there was never a point where I thought, you know, oh, well, maybe I'd, I'd join some other church or some other faith of, of, of any kind. And so it was just a matter of trying to figure out how I, I, I could be, be Catholic at that point. So I gave myself permission to really study what the church actually teaches about sexuality and um, went deep into it for a couple of years and, and came out on the other side of that saying, I know I'm still Catholic, but I just know that at, on this teaching, like I disagree and I think the church can do better. So Pat, at a time when there are so many people in the LGBT Catholic community who feel so marginalized in the church, you've been very dedicated to creating these safe spaces for them. And you are one of the co-founders of Vine and Fig, which is an online queer Catholic community. Why did you decide to start this community? Yeah, I was I was sitting down with a couple of friends and we were frustrated that there weren't a lot of truly affirming spaces for queer Catholics out there and that we wanted both to give that message of, of affirmation for folks who often get a very negative message from the church, but we also wanted to create a, a space of, of community because queer Catholics typically can't gather in any church uh, spaces. And often when they are working for the church or serving the church, when it's found out that, that they're married or that they're even you know just gay or anything like that, they're often fired or asked to, to leave the various ministries that they're in. And so we wanted a space where we could come together and be our full selves and be honest. And so it was, uh, we created a, a website where we could give some kind of materials of affirmation, but also uh, we created a Slack room that was private and uh, controlled and safe, where we could also talk with one another and really mm -hmm. try and form community. And what was the response like when you initially founded Vine and Fig? Really quite positive. Um, we've managed to avoid most of the, the, the trolls and the mm -hmm. angry folks on, on the internet so far. We're, I guess we're flying under the radar enough that, that we've, we've avoided most of that. Hopefully this interview does not bring them <laughs> upon you. <laughs> we never know, but it's largely it's been folks having immense gratitude and, and joy at being able to find other folks that I've 
the, the, the refrain that we've heard most often is, I, I didn't realize that there were others out there like me. I really thought I was the only person mm-hmm. in my parish who was like this. I thought I was the only uh, person who was uh, teaching at a Catholic school or something that, that had uh, this kind of hidden secret. And, and even if it's just a couple hundred folks that, that I'm talking to right now, it, it is such a relief to know that I can actually be Catholic and be fully myself. Yeah. And so one of the beauties of the internet is you can create those spaces um, that are welcoming, but that can be harder in the real world right. sometimes. Have you been able to find a, a parish community um, that you feel like you can contribute to and be a full part of? Yeah, it's it's an interesting conversation that goes on among queer Catholics of saying, OK, I'm in this city. Does anybody know a parish that I can attend? Um, is that and... something that Vine and Fig like? facilitates we don't have like a database or, or anything <laughs> quite yet um but uh there is a website actually called church clarity which is a non-denominational website and and they do kind of basically rate uh churches all over the country based on how uh, welcoming they are to queer members and and women in leadership and so one of the things that at least we do on a more informal basis with Vine and Fig is is at least trying to connect folks who have been in similar cities and say, hey, look, I know this parish, and you know maybe you're not going to hear a, a a pro LGBT homily, but at least you'll be safe to go there with your partner. You'll be safe to to go there and and volunteer, and folks will be welcoming to you. Mm-hmm. And sorry, and you you have found a parish like that? I have, yeah. So I I live in Austin, and thankfully I've I've found a parish where uh, there are a lot of active queer members, and 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 we feel very at home there. But not everyone's going to have multiple parishes around, right? I think we we run into this conversation. I think as young adults in general a lot, but it's even more focused when you're trying to find a space where you can be queer and Catholic too. What do you say to someone who maybe is having a really hard time finding? An, an IRL parish community. Right. I think that was a lot of our motivation in creating our, our Slack room and our online community is trying to meet folks where they're at. Um, I would never encourage somebody to just up and leave if they didn't feel that was uh, the right thing to do, to try and go to, you know, maybe a city where they could find an affirming parish. Um, but to try and find those connections, because it is, it's so vital. I think the statistics around uh, uh, suicide and depression among LGBT, especially youth, are are staggering and embarrassing. Um, and so I really strongly encourage anybody who does feel alone and does feel that they, they don't fit in in their parish to at least find uh, some online communities and some spaces where they can reach out and, 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 and be known for who they really are. Do you ever get, I don't know, questions or criticism from people who aren't Catholic um, who are wondering why you've stayed a part of this church? Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's, a, it's a very common question. And my response is, is typically to say, I, I don't know. I think that, that grace is very mysterious. I don't know why I've been given some kind of strength to, to stay and to feel like this is still my home. Because logically, you would think that, that I, I wouldn't. But there's still something tugging on me within the Holy Spirit that says, stay, it can get better. And, and there are so many other courageous folks out there who are, are doing good work to trying to make the church a better place and, and to, to stay for the folks who... I often think about 
where I was when I was in high school, and I was realizing for the first time that I loved the church, but that I also didn't fit in within the church. And it was that kid that I often think about when we're creating resources within Vine and Fig is, is what, what does that person need to hear in order to feel more sure about themselves and their place within the church? Because I think the church should be a place for everybody. And Pat, you mentioned, you know, thinking about the kid that you were when you were young and understood your Catholic identity and were, knew that you were gay. What do you wish you had been told as a young queer Catholic growing up? Right. I wish I had been told that God had a plan for me that was more than going through life broken. I think that message that I received from everything from the catechism to to homilies to throwaway comments from priests and other parishioners was that on this deep level that we believe as Catholics of being made for for family, I got this message of you'll never be capable of that. And um, I think my life would have been very different if if I believed deep down that I wasn't made broken. Knowing now that you aren't, well, I hope <laughs> I hope you feel that way now. How has that changed your relationship with God? I don't think I understood when I was younger and I had that perception of being made broken or at least made for a life that was going to involve such brokenness. I didn't realize just how playful and close God is. I think that's something I'm able to sense more in in prayer and just going through life that there's this mysteriousness and uh, affectionate side of God that was totally missing from me when I was younger. And I thought it was all just about serving the God who made rules. Yeah. Man, that feels like such a beautiful place to just stop. And we have one final question and thank you so much for just, I'm inspired by your, the grace that you've been given to stay in the church um, as a friend. So thank you. Um, we have one final question. Uh, we ask all our guests this, uh, if you canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be and why? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for having me. It's it's great being with friends and, and uh, I'm grateful for all that Jesuitical does for so many young Catholics. I would canonize Anthony Bourdain. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just thinking about how it's now been one year since uh, he died this week. And... Uh, you know, going back to that, that question of, of wanting to share queer Catholic stories, that was the thing that I always got from his shows was just how dedicated he was to not just seeing new sides of the world, but to telling the stories of the people that actually lived there. I, I remember even one time he, he mentioned how he, when he, when someone would present him with some, some food, he would always say that the food tasted good. Even if for his palate, he didn't like it. He knew that folks were presenting him this food because they thought it tasted good. And it was important for the viewers back home to understand that 
from the perspective of the the people there, like this was good food. And I think the church could do, could do a lot and learn a lot and grow a lot if we could hear some of uh, the stories from members of the church that often aren't asked uh, to speak. And instead of kind of imposing a our own understanding onto their life experiences, maybe just listen and allow them to to share it and and to believe them when they they share their lives. Saint Bourdain, I love it, man. <laughs> All right, Pat Vine and Fig. Where can people find it? Yeah, so we're at vineandfig.co, and we are also on Twitter and Instagram at vineandfigco. Awesome. Right. Thank you. Thanks, Pat. Thank you yeah, so thank much. You, Thanks, y'all. This episode of Jesuitical is brought to you by the Catholic Travel Center, proud partner with America Media for six years, hosting their pilgrimages to Ireland, Italy, Spain, and the Holy Land. Catholic Travel Center is the customized group pilgrimage specialist, serving the Catholic community for nearly 30 years. To organize your organization's next pilgrimage, contact Catholic Travel Center at gocatholictravel.com. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? I've got a consolation this week. I got to spend Pentecost Sunday at um, a Presbyterian church where my fiance's dad was preaching. Um, And it was really, even though I've talked on the podcast about how often my relationship with his parents can be a little tense, it's always really wonderful when they invite me into these spaces. Um, One, because it's nice to worship with his family. But two, it gives me uh, an inside look into how Enoch's faith life was growing up. Um, And it was just really wonderful to see how God was present in his life growing up and how it's so similar, like seeing it from when he was a child to now that he's almost 30. Um, And it's just really wonderful to be able to share in that space with not just him, but also his parents as well. So that's where I found God this week. That sounds wonderful. What do you have, Zach? I've got a consolation as well. Uh, We talk a lot about consolations don't have to come out of good things, and sometimes they come out of bad things. And I think that's an instance of this where it was a hard week in the Catholic Church again, and there's just like a lot of difficult stories to cover. Um, and the church seems like a, a mess again and again and again. But the consolation was, you know, thinking about it and praying about it and also talking about it with other people and especially coworkers here, uh, recognizing where the temptation is to give into despair, I guess, because having gone through this like many times over, it's really easy to figure out where the evil spirit is going to sort of take advantage of a situation and be like, well, what's the point? Why are you doing this? Go find another job or whatever it is, right? And, you know, I'm not trying to be naive and ignore the bad things because we have to be, you know, prayer is looking at the real. Contemplation is the long living look at what's real. And there are real bad things. But I think the consolation is pausing to wait for God to help me sort through what is like helpful anger and what is not helpful anger and those emotions. So that's where I'm paying attention this week, even in this hard time. What do you have, Ashley? I also have a consolation. Uh, so yes, uh, last week I talked about how I was in this like very um, dry prayer life at the moment. Um, and so 
I went on an afternoon run after work that day and I I decided to not listen to music and just like use that as an opportunity for silence and to try to pray. Um, So I did my normal run and I got to Brooklyn Bridge Park, which is this beautiful park um, on the water with a view of Manhattan. Um, And they have these picnic tables and grills and there was like a ton of people and I was like, oh, what's going on? And I was like running by and then like as I was running, I was just like confronted by this like huge crowd of people who were celebrating the end of Ramadan. So there were like... It was just like the most diverse group ever. There was every nationality, every age. There were women in like full headdress and people in shorts and T-shirts. And they were all just like together eating, playing soccer, you know, just enjoying each other's um, fellowship. And it had, like you said, it was it's not been a great time in the church. Um, and I had like I spent so much of my time on like Catholic Twitter where people are just like tearing each other down. And to see this like image of just like diversity but like ultimately unity um it was just like a reminder of like the best that religion can be um and to be given that reminder um from from our muslim brothers and sisters was just like a really powerful moment and a and a moment of prayer when i haven't had one in a while so that was where i found god this week stay off catholic twitter yep <laughs> all right Jesuitical is produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundra. Production help from Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. No new reviews this week, so please head over to Apple Podcasts and help us out. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashlyn McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.